Throughout history, Christians have created art, written books, and made music for worship, entertainment, and to express their faith in ever-increasing endeavors. And for the last six decades, they have created contemporary Christian music for the church and for the masses. Here at Legacy, we are counting down the finest works over these last decades. So join me, your host, David Lohman, as we celebrate CCM's greatest albums, right here on Legacy. Welcome once again to Legacy. I'm your host, Dave Lohman, and we have got a jam-packed program today. We are going to be reviewing nine albums along with a tenth that'll be part of a brand new feature we're calling On the Bubble, which we'll talk about a little bit later. We also have two interviews, one with Jesus Music pioneer Jerry Limpic and his group uh, Limpic and Rayburn. And we'll also be talking to someone I consider worthy of consideration for the Mount Rushmore of Jesus Music and CCM, Chris Christian, as we talk a little bit about his background. And we also talk about a very special album, Home Sweet Home, his record label put out by a gentleman by the name of David Martin. So hang on. We'll be right back with the countdown continuing right here on Legacy. Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash legacy CCM's greatest albums at Instagram at legacy CCM's greatest albums and finally on Twitter at legacy CCM's best. And now number 995. Up where Willow Creek cuts across the camp. All right, it is uh, it is my pleasure to have on the line uh, Jerry Limpic of Limpic and Rayburn as we talk about the album Caught in the Crossfire. In fact, I have now Jerry. I actually have an LP. This remember those things? Um, I have I this uh, this vinyl in front of me, and I yeah. think before we really can talk about the album, we do need to deal with just how deliciously awesome those leisure suits are. Excuse me. Uh, those were not technically leisure suits. Remember, leisure suits were normally polyester. They were like uh, weird colors. There was a different look. These were legitimate suits. Okay, so let's just start off and get that. Oh, okay. All right, but I but I do love the fact that you know you have the darker suit with the lighter color shirt, and then the darker shirt with the lighter colored suit. And <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if we thought that out that well, <laughs> but I think we just thought. Here's the deal. Time to take a photo for the album cover. What should we do? And we didn't have like, nobody back then had like a art director or stylist and all that. It's like, okay, let's figure this out. And so, you throw you I, throw in a blue background. And um, well, you know what though? I, I would not be surprised to have seen an early photo of DeGarmo and Key 
wearing the exact okay. same things. So okay, well, it was the time. Yeah. It definitely was the time, but the the record itself I have always found fascinating. Just so you know, I was about three or four years late to actually owning it. I was working at this uh, Christian bookstore in Southern California with an okay. odd name called the Pink Lady. It was this okay. weird little wonderful little Christian bookstore that started off as an ice cream shop and then turned into a Christian bookstore, and so they kept the name. And right. um, it was one of the demos that was in there, and it would be playing regularly. And so after a while, they you know they sell the demo off for a buck or whatever and I said I've always wondered what that album sounded like and this was years after um, mm -hmm. the album and this was probably about 84 85 and I right. took it home and I said as a Loggins and Messina fan I love this because I was only about probably 14 or 15 when the album okay. first came out and right. I loved it, especially, and we'll get to this in a moment, I love Side 2. Okay. I find Side 2 to be a very cool departure from, from anything else that was happening in Christian music with some just really interesting music going on. But I kind of want to walk my way through some of it, because at the same time, yeah. I was working at a radio station, KYMS, in Orange County, California, which was a big okay. one. But uh, we used yeah. to play Mr. Good News all the time before I started okay. working there hearing that song and I always wondered who it was so I put the album on wait that's that song that I've always wondered to be honest it was actually the song after that that really uh, kind of stole it from me that, that got me into it I loved Domino and and I'm kind of curious just the background of the song because I think it kind of has a yeah. very different message than a lot of the other Jesus music slash CCM um, yeah. that was going on at the time wow I really appreciate that you consider various angles on the way to interpret lyrics and look at lyrics, because I have to tell you that this was back in the day before really worship music and bent towards trying to write stuff that's going to sell. We were just playing out, ministering, and I just wrote songs. So you want to talk about the theme of Domino? Yeah, I was kind of, yeah, I, it's a bit more, I think, just find it unique in that it's it doesn't deal with, like, such the happy-go-lucky side of the Christian walk. No, I appreciate you noticing that, because part of, I think, my band, I was raised in the church, real life, it's not always easy, there are struggles, but that's okay, that's the normal Christian life, and I didn't want to do that candy coat thing, and so I just wrote about stuff. Now, this, this story... I'm really glad you brought this up because, first of all, the song was written, I'll, I'll call it, it was written at somebody, okay? You can write a song for, for certain things. This was written at somebody. And this is a, a, a friend, and and I won't get into giant details, although he's, he's in the ministry now, but he went through a phase in his life where he was a, a great singer, songwriter, really good country guy. And he went through a weird phase, and he ends up playing in a nightclub. That's, this song was literally written like, you know better. You know that you're on the wrong track. So I'm just going to write you as a, as a brother. And I think I even wrote a lyric in there, like I'm writing as a friend, or writing as a brother. And just want you to know that I care about you, and come on back home. Basically, what that song is all about. And I've stayed in touch with it, in fact. The person the song was written for sent me a message two months ago. I think it was a birthday message, and he said, "Hey Jerry, it's Domino," and and he said, "Happy birthday" or something like that, <laughs> which I thought was just 
so cool. Oh, that 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 is great, and and it's and again, I find it interesting at a time because and, and one of the things that I was I, I talk about and when I on the review on the blog is that this album is kind of unique, and I think it kind of is one of those what I have referred to as bridge albums. I think uh, Randy Stonehill's second album, or even the Between the Glory and the Flame from Randy did the same thing. Daniel Amos's album um, Horrendous Disc does it. It bridged from the Jesus music into the CCM world and okay. that it, it still had this great um, um, traditional sort of real gospel feel, but also said, you know what, we're going to start branching out. We're writing about things that are real life and the music had to also be completely legitimate. We couldn't fake it. We couldn't do um, the weak sauce version um Things needed to sound as good as anything else, and that's why when I look at the album, I go, "Yeah, it's, you know, the Seals and Crofts, Loggins and Messina, England Dan, John, John Ford Coley, that great mm-hmm. duo vibe that right. was going on at the time. This thing fit right in. The strings didn't sound as syrupy, but they were still legit strings, kind of like how Hall and Oates used strings in the late seventies. Well, but wow, that's so cool that you noticed that because we those were all real strings. You know? Yeah, and and uh, you can notice it, especially like the next song, which there was an era where people wrote wedding songs, but this one was a little less. Some of them are very much you can tell. Oh, I wrote this song so that everyone would buy the accompaniment track and sing it at their right. wedding. <laughs> right. This right, one doesn't right. seem to have that much of of that sort of feel. It doesn't feel as though it was a cosmetic look at Ooh. this. Uh, uh, this, this uh, of marriage no, and the covenant. No, no, you're right. I wish I would have been smarter because <laughs> the song actually has gotten used a lot. And and as you know, you don't get paid for live performances. You know, nope. um, uh, that song I wrote for some friends of mine a few years ago, actually. But I wrote it on the acoustic guitar. These are some really good friends of mine. Wanted me to sing in their wedding, and I said, "I'm going to write you a song." Well, the day before the wedding, I still didn't have the song, and so I went to the zoo and started walking around, and then the lyrics started coming. Because you got to start with something. Time for joy. Okay, there you go. Then I just told the story. A very simple song. So by the time it evolved to recording it, it had kind of changed. I started playing it on piano because it sounded a little bit better. We recorded it. That's what that was, and it, it's gotten used a ton. I'm, I'm thrilled. I get, I get people writing me regularly about, we use this song in our wedding or our daughter's wedding or whatever. Yeah, and, and I yeah. remember this was this was back in the day where people had to buy songbooks and right. sheet music. <laughs> they no, didn't really I, have the ac- I, accompaniment I, tracks. I, actually, I think Word actually put out a music or a wedding songbook, and it was called "Time for Joy." Yeah, so, and it was, and I remember selling that when I was working in Christian retail. Some, somebody made a few pennies off of that, not me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's usually how that works. But I want to jump to what I, I referenced earlier, which is side two. And I think side two starts off with the very best song on the album. Um, I think it's also one of the best songs of that entire era. It does not fit into the normal either Jesus music or CCM world, it feels like. And yet it is probably the most gospel-centric song on the entire album. And, and I'm talking about the Mary song because yeah. it, it it's very epic. It's, it's interesting because every time I listen to it, even though it's only five and a half minutes, 
so much takes place. It feels like it's one of those seven, eight minute kind of epic songs because <laughs> musically it goes through a ton of changes. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking Carrie yeah. Livgren would have been happy with the, some of the musical okay. arrangements that take place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and yeah. it slowly builds, but it's also, you mentioned Mary Magdalene, and a lot of times when you see Mary's song, you, you automatically think Mary, Mother of Jesus. So you get a really kind yeah. of a different approach, and it's very dark minor key kind of sound mm -hmm. to it it just didn't fit what we would normally right. sing along hey here's a happy easter song yeah. it's a very powerful yeah. song well, how come we never met before because uh <laughs> this is so nice to hear as a writer i can tell you this the, the, the idea behind that song was to tell a story the idea putting myself in the positions of the disciples like what would it be like to have all of your hopes and dreams and they believe jesus was not going to get killed but he was going to come and kick out the Romans and set up God's kingdom. And then there was this day and a half, two day situation where, wait a minute, he just, they, they arrested him and they tortured him and they killed him. And what are we supposed to do? So that was kind of the, the vibe. That's why I wanted this kind of like epic Henry Mancini, mm -hmm. almost like a movie set. That's in my mind. I just told the story. And I love and, and I love the fact that it's from Mary's point of view, and you have the point in which she, you know, the, the perfume bottle and the, right. the the wiping the the his feet with her hair. That, that sort of part of the story is told, and it's even her recollections. Remember when yeah. he said he was going to die? That's the point. It's pretty biblical in terms of the storytelling, but I really wanted to capture this sense of like, well, these disciples are real people. They were trying to figure this thing out. And they were blown away. They had no clue. What, and then that's what the whole point is. Like, the resurrection, it's all now, it's all coming around. Now we're starting to get it. And and I have to tell you that I think I went a little bit nuts uh, with the production on that one because the studio that ported at, this was back in the 70s, and it was a great studio in El Cajon in San Diego County. There's a live echo chamber, state-of-the-art for what it was at the time. But everything was analog. Everything was taped. Synthesizers were kind of weird at that point coming in, so we wanted to use real strings, and we used San Diego Symphony people, and we would bring in a group of about eight of them and then stack them to death, so we'd end up with an orchestra, you know, overdub, overdub, overdub. Ended up with kind of that stuff. Now, I went a little bit crazy with the timpani and other <laughs> things, but I but I thought, you know what? This is I wanted it to be kind of like a weird Italian movie vibe you know so i wanted the, the emotion to come across well and that's so, why i believe it, it that's why to me as a listener it feels like it's one of those songs that's seven and eight minutes long just because mm -hmm. of how much is taking yeah. place and you can definitely sense there is an epic nature to the the, the way that the song is even uh drawn wow. out so and i, I kind of want to finish um talking about this album by by discussing the last song because I love the fact that it, it doesn't leave with, and then everything was wonderful and beautiful, yeah. but rather it leaves with, so what are you going to do about this? Exactly. Man, as a writer, it's so nice to hear somebody that listens to lyrics and tries to see where things are going. Yeah, that song, again, it, it, you can take some you know, creative license with certain things. But that one was kind of like, there's a passage in John where Jesus actually is quoted as saying something like, are you following me because I fed you, like the feeding of the 5,000, or because you really believe in me? And and then I just took the position of, wow, there's a lot of people that, just, that were just watching. 
They weren't committed yet, but they were just hanging out. And are you there because we can give you food? Or are you there because you're starting to, this is making sense to you? And I wanted to leave it with that question of like, I think the, the repeating phrases, too many watching, too many standing, too many looking on, something like that. Mm-hmm. The idea of just there's a crowd and there's like the committed. And of course, we have most of the committed started out as the crowd. Where are you? Yeah, there are just certain songs that are just obvious album closers. Wow. Well, that's nice of you to say. It's kind of weird when you're putting an album together because I used this is back in the day when we viewed albums as like statements. There, there is a side A side a continuity. You want to have it kind of follow and the songs need to flow properly. And that's not always easy to do. I mean, you, you have to kind of work on it. I love the fact that you are putting this together that that was in my mind a good way to close it because it kind of is asking the question where are you uh, as opposed to let's put a nice bow on this and everything ends up great no you got a choice to make and we all do what that is awesome well again uh jerry thank you so much uh for joining us as in this conversation about the amazing sure. album caught in the crossfire that is a uh, uh, limpic and rayburn's caught in the crossfire and we've been talking to jerry limpic At number 995, that is Olympic and Rayburn's Caught in the Crossfire. And now, number 994. yeah i know i'm not supposed to like this album it's not cool or cutting edge it wasn't artistic it wasn't uh super deep in fact it was often derivative it was not original by any stretch of the imagination in fact it was about as original as a bumper sticker on the back of a vw microbus in 1974 but it does not matter this thing simply rocks And I am talking about 100% Proof's debut project, 100% Proof. Now, they were often compared to ACDC, and I just don't think it's really there. Sure, they're a blues-influenced rock and roll band that had kind of a cool edge, but vocally, there was definitely no Brian Johnson or Bon Scott. But I think a lot of people just think that if you've got a blues-influenced rock band with the heavy distorted guitars with big hooks and loud guitar solos, then it must be ACDC. But I just I just don't see it as much. Now, the band is actually a pretty cool band coming from, uh, from England. They released two albums and an EP. And then the leader of the band, Charlie Wilson... He took off to start a band uh, called Force 3 that went on to create, I think they did one or two albums. I, I know for sure I have one. And it was okay. It wasn't that it was as, as enjoyable for me as this 100% Proof album is. Quite frankly, it simply starts off with great, good old-fashioned rock and roll, a la, I guess, ACDC, Bad Company, George Thorogood. Anyway, Backseat Driver.
again, I admit, the messages on this album are super simplistic. But you got to remember the time. This is the early 80s. In fact, I think it's about 1980 or 81 by the time it comes to the United States. And uh, for the most part, the album is just kind of fun, straight-ahead rock and roll. As uh, we heard in Backseat Driver and, and even now, just take a listen real quick to uh, just a, a bit of a song called Tightrope. songs are across the board very evangelistic they're super simplistic they're um i think the word i like to use is jingoistic for the most part they uh they warn about sin about complacency um drug abuse uh and there's always a call for repentance this is simple evangelicalism or evangelism 101 from the 70s and the early 80s it fits right in it is stripped down garage rock and roll now, it is uh, interesting that because of the ACDC comparison, a lot of people bring out this one song uh, about Bon Scott called Loner. The song was written about Bon Scott, who was the original lead singer and the leader of ACDC, and just talks about the dangers of the kind of lifestyle that leads eventually to Bon Scott's death. So the band itself is all about rock and roll. It's all about fun. And I think for the critics who simply just don't want to deal with it, they don't understand. Just every once in a while, you need to just have some great rock and roll. Is it a guilty pleasure? Well, I know for one thing, it's definitely a pleasure. At number 994, that is 100% proof with 100% proof. And now, number 993. Let's be honest right up front. If this album had more than just four songs on it, it would be much higher on the countdown. In fact, it was in the top 500 from the original blog from over a decade ago. I wanted to include it there because I simply wanted people to hear this album. I loved Larry Weber and the Buzz Tones, simply known as Weber and the Buzz Tones and called Weber and the Buzz Tones, this 1984 release on one of my favorite names for a label, low-budget Webtone Records, was a mainstay. 
In fact, one of the things they did that was kind of cool is all four songs are on both sides of the album. So it's not just like two songs on one side, two on the other. You get four on each side. So the group started out as Larry Weber Millennium, and they did a 45 single under that moniker that had the song Lamb Chops, which is also here. But also they had a song called God Blessed America, which I've actually never heard. I've been trying to track down the single, and I've never been able to hear it. But they did have this song, Lamb Chops. Obviously, you can hear a whole lot of the Cars, Gary Newman. And for Christian music fans, you can kind of hear a little bit of Quick Flight. But you can also hear a bit of like missing persons at the same time. Um, A little bit of Haircut 100, Flock of Seagulls. That whole sort of keyboard-driven oriented pop music from the early to mid-80s. Those of you who lived in Southern California remember K-Rock, K-R-O-Q. And this was the kind of music that would play throughout. Where Runaway talks about those who are running away from God. Walk away encourages us to walk away from sin. I did get to see Weber and the Buzz Tones twice. I believe I saw them once at the Anaheim Convention Center. Uh, there's kind of a, uh, a Calvary Chapel concert that had a whole bunch of different artists all throughout the day. And then one time I did see them open up for Steve Taylor, which I believe they also opened up on more than just a handful of, of, of times. The only thing more difficult to get a hold of than the EP that I'm talking about here, the Weber and the Buzz Tones, is Larry Weber himself. If anybody knows Larry that listens to the podcast or reads the blog, please do me a favor. Let Larry know I've been trying to get a hold of him. I would love to have him on the show. But... At number 993, that's Weber and the Buzz Tones. And now, 992. I see you there, talking on your car phone, wondering what could ever be so important. It must be strange to change the course of history, when all I'm trying to do is just change lanes. I believe the first time that I met Linda Elias, I was at the Frontline Records offices, and that was probably sometime in the late 80s, probably sometime in 89. And Brian Tong and Mike McLean, who were pretty much running the the Frontline Records at the time, 
had invited me to hear this new artist, and they would do that occasionally when they wanted me to hear someone that was going to be uh, someone they were had a real high hopes for, someone that was a real priority for the label. I was working for the Benson Company at the time, and that was part of the distribution company for Frontline. And it was at that day that I met Rick Elias, and they played for me Rick's album, Rick Elias and the Confessions. And well, one of those confessions, which was the back band for Rick Elias, was actually his wife, Linda. And I loved her voice. It wasn't prominent on the album, but you could still hear it. But there was kind of this cool Belinda Carlisle uh, sort of uh, feel to it, kind of a Susanna Hoffs, uh, cool 80s. A uh, lilting voice that just sounded very cool and pop, had kind of this acoustic sort of vibe to it, and I really liked her voice, but I never expected her to do a solo album. But fortunately, in 1991, she went ahead and did create a, an album of, of her own, her and Rick put together. Uh, they, in fact, they co-wrote, I think, all but one song on the album, uh, uh, Linda co-wrote. And it just had a great feel to it, and I had uh, real high hopes that this was going to be something that was going to uh, really explode for them because it was very commercial and very pop. The album is called The Meaning of Love, and actually the very first song, the title track, really should have been a monster hit. I had gotten to know the Eliases pretty well working with them. I traveled with Rick, taking him to Christian bookstores, and uh, we had struck up a friendship. In fact, uh, sometime in late 90, when we had moved into a small little apartment, we found out we were going to be having our first child, and so we invited the uh, Eliases over uh, to, to uh, let them know, and in fact, it was kind of interesting. So we had this party, and a lot of people said they could make it. Some people said they couldn't. So we just kept inviting people, and the next thing you know, we had this house. In fact, I wish it was a house. It was a small apartment just filled with people and had the wonderful opportunity to introduce Rick Elias to a friend of mine who was a great singer-songwriter who we will be talking about on this countdown by the name of Michael Anderson. And they got to meet, and they really seemed to hit it off as great songwriters, but really got to know Linda even better. And one of the things that I love so much about this album, in fact, the other track I'd really like people to hear, is a song called Yours and Mine. And it's the one time that Rick shows up on the album and really makes a huge difference. And it's kind of cool because it mixes Rick's very guttural, gutsy, uh, rough-edged voice with uh, Linda's very sweet Berlinda, uh, Belinda Carlisle sort of voice and it really makes for a great combination. note great saxophone solo on that song 
by little Stephen Crumb. Definitely worth checking out. So at number 992, that is Linda Elias and the meaning of love. 991. I have to admit from the outset, I have a love-hate relationship with this album. Over the last 30, 40 years, I have loved this album and I have hated this album. And a lot of it has to do with the history. After three amazing rock albums, DeGarmo and Key put out probably the greatest live album in the history of Christian music. Long guitar solos. It was amazing. It was rock and roll, tour de force. And then they were nominated for a gospel Grammy, the very first Christian rock band ever to be nominated for one. And then they went out on tour with Amy Grant. And the next thing you know, this happened. But I had to ask myself this question. Was the album any good? Yes, it is. It truly is a great album filled with radio-ready classics. It is DeGarmo and Key's tour de force of the pop, keyboard-driven style that they did for about three albums before returning back to their blues rock and roll roots. But this album was filled with amazing tracks. And one of the best parts of it is with Dana setting down his guitar for the most part, he could really concentrate on his vocals. And it showed up especially in ballads like All the Losers Win. And long before David Crowder, Chris Tomlin, Phil Wickham, and the rest of the modern worship guys were taking over the world, there was DeGarmo and Key. And they were creating music, especially on this album and the couple that followed, that were really uh, geared towards being sung in church. In fact, it was about this time that accompaniment tracks started to take hold in the Christian music market. I was working in Christian retail at the time, both at the Pink Lady and also at Maranatha Village, and accompaniment tracks were a major part of our income. Accompaniment tracks were simply a way for people to sing in church using the instrumentation that was either identical or very close to the original that they would hear on the radio. No longer would they buy sheet music or song books and have to try and reduplicate the songs they heard on the radio. They would have the exact same instrumentation. 
And so, before modern worship became the thing that it now is, there was Degarmo and Key and songs like Let the Whole World Sing. Amidst all the technology, there are great pop songs, and one of the best is the album Closer, a classic cover of Billy Preston's classic, That's the Way God Planned It. Ultimately, I love this album. If I didn't, it wouldn't be included. So, at number 991, DeGarmo and Key, Mission of Mercy. 990. For nearly 40 years, I've always wondered, is it Adina doll? Eden Adol? Eden Adol? Adine Adol? I don't know. refer to them as Eden Adal and this album we're going to be discussing is number 990 Bertle Adine's solo project Cross the Borderline Released about six months or so after the album X Factor by Adina Dolph from his band, the uh, Cross the Borderline kind of fits more into what they were doing the first two albums that came to the United States than what happened later, which were much more soulful and blue-eyed soul-oriented albums. These first two were much more world music and rock and roll focused with a little bit of alternative, and uh, Bertel's album fit right into that. In fact... One of the songs from the uh, solo album was on the album X Factor. The song was called Like a Motion Picture. Bandmate Simon Adal also put out a solo album about the same time, and we'll be discussing that one later. 
But one of the great things about Bertle's album is that there's this great combination of upbeat and mellow and mid-tempo songs. But one of the really, truly great songs is the album Closer, a great ballad, I'm Waiting For You. Number 990, that is Bertel Adin, Cross the Borderline. Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash Legacy CCM's Greatest Albums, at Instagram at Legacy CCM's Greatest Albums, and finally on Twitter at Legacy CCM's Best. On November 16th, 1994, Reverend Dan Smith died. He was 84 years old. Number 989. God radar is fixed on you. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God's radar is fixed on you. To many in the world, including most of the CCM world, his passing went on without much of an acknowledgement. But for 80 of his 84 years, Dan Smith was a blues-crooning, harmonica-blasting, gospel-folk, street-preaching treasure. And this album, number 989, Just Keep Going by Reverend Dan Smith, is an album you should own. Just keep going on, just keep going on. Just keep going on, just keep going on. Take every knock as a boost, every stumbling block as a stepping stone to lift up your head and hold you on it. Just keep going on. I said, just keep going on. Just keep going Produced by on. Buddy Miller of Julie and Buddy Miller fame. The album also includes incredible background vocals and support by Brian Duncan and Victoria Williams. This album cannot, should not, and should never be missed. It belongs in every single CCM and Jesus Music fans record collection. Take God to build a home. 
takes God to build a home. It takes God to build a home. It takes God to build a home. Oh, any man, he know how. At number 989, Reverend Dan Smith, Just Keep Going. So joining me right now um, is Chris Christian. And as I mentioned earlier, if there was a Mount Rushmore, uh, Chris Christian's uh, head would be placed firmly upon the Mount Rushmore of the history of Christian music. And one of the parts that I've um, always appreciated about uh, Chris and uh, what he has done is the creation of Home Sweet Home. And uh, one of the things we have discussed in the past is that um, there are certain labels that created music for the masses, but also made sure that great singer-songwriters had an opportunity to have their music heard, uh, have their songs um, um, heard uh, out in the marketplace. And so that's one of the things I love so much about Home Sweet Home. But uh, thank you, Chris, for joining us today here on Legacy. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, so... Um, we're going to be talking first uh, about the David Martin Project. I loved this album. I was working both at KYMS and at a little weird Christian bookstore. It wasn't weird. It just happened to have a weird name. It was called The Pink Lady, and it was in Orange, California. And I would play this album in the store nonstop. I loved that album. How did you get to know or meet or how did you come across uh, David Martin as a songwriter? You know, I don't, I don't remember exactly uh, how I came across him, but I know the way I worked in those days. And uh, there was kind of two things that were, first of all, the industry was very small. And like when I signed Amy Grant uh, and did her first record, uh, for B- I did BJ first, but I wrote most of the songs for BJ's album because there was no industry. You couldn't go to the Christian publishers or Christian songwriters, at least pop Christian because there was nobody, no place to go. And so when I, I was always scouring, asking everybody, and in, when I did concerts, uh, you know, I, when most people were trying to sell CD or albums or records in the, after a concert, I was getting more interested in, hey, is there anybody in your, this town, Portland, or, you know, wherever, that's really, that writes some pop Christian songs? I was scouring the nation trying to find people that were good writers. And I think I had a pretty good ear uh, of what was good and not. And I could listen to about 10 or 15 seconds of a, a song or a tape of somebody, and I'd pretty much know if it was worth listening further or not. So somehow I came across, I think Phil Nash was one of my keyboard players on a few, quite a few albums I did. And, and he probably played me David's tape. And David's a great writer and a phenomenal singer. I mean, yeah, he just sounded David Gates. You know, he's... That is a great comparison because I was kind of looking through, you know, as I've listened to the album over and over as I'm writing the the um, the the review for it that ends up on the website. I was kind of saying, well, where does he kind of fit? And he kind of has this what I listed as kind of this really unique combination of like Richard Marks meets Stephen Bishop, um, where you have kind of this cool groove of, of kind of a rock edge at times, but then that Stephen Bishop. I mean, when he hit a ballad, when David hit a ballad, it. 
he crushed those songs. And so I, he, I, there was this weird combination. I, and I love what you say with David Gates, because obviously David is probably one of the greatest ballad singers and ballad writers uh, in the history of music. And so when I when I think about David's album, and before we get to the the title track, I loved the first song on the album. It to me sounded kind of, and it was interesting because, it, you know how your brain works, and you, know, you try and remember like, well, was this song before this song, or this song after this song, and and I was looking and I was thinking of Richard Marks' uh, "Don't Mean Nothing," and I realized that David's f- album came out like three years before Richard Marks hit the scene, and yet. He kind of had that great light pop rock Hall and Oates sort of vibe, uh, and, and he was kind of right in the wheelhouse of what was happening musically at the time. Yeah, that's true, and it's also pretty big in Japan. There's a, a genre in West Coast in Japan that's real popular called yacht rock music. Oh yeah, and and it's kind of the same thing as West Coast music or AOR, which stands for Adult Oriented Rock. But all of that's in that era between like uh, late seventies and eighty five era. Uh, there was a certain sound that came out. Yeah, because I, my favorite vocalist, of, uh, pretty much of all time, outside of like heavy metal vocalist, the my favorite vocalist is uh, David Pack of Ambrosia. Yeah, I just yeah. I just think he just has this amazing voice and a great guy too, which I had the pleasure of meeting him a few times, but. You created Home Sweet Home, and you had some big art. I mean, obviously, like White Hart and Steve Archer. These guys were selling a ton of records, but that kind of afforded you the opportunity to make, um, you know, some albums by people like Mark Hurd and David Martin. Uh, you kind of answered the question. I mean, that's that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, what I did, I really understood songs. I understood writing songs. I understood the makeup of songs of what are great songs and great songwriters write great songs you know a great songwriter doesn't just usually write one great song yeah and so uh david martin appealed to me first of all as a songwriter because he wrote great songs and i was doing the imperials at that time and uh when i heard let the wind blow i I knew i wanted to cut that on the imperials and so I, i assigned david as a writer but then i just thought his voice was so great and great harmonies i said well hey why don't we just try a record you know yourself if he i don't i'm not sure he was pretty pursuing an artist career at that point um and and we did and, and it was very successful you know yeah, uh, it was it was a, it was i somewhat jokingly refer to that that was a great little record and i i sometimes look at something like the first cut which was take him to heart and i always wonder like if steve archer recorded that song at the exact same time it probably would have been a number one christian radio hit just yeah, based on who it was uh you got good ears. That's a that would be a perfect song for Steve Archer. Yeah, and, 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 but then then but then as the album goes on and there's no way of getting around it, that title track, I think, is one of the for that era in that three four years of 1982 to 1985 86. I think it's just one of the most perfectly created uh, pop songs. I mean, I, I think "Stronger Than the Weight" is a classic in terms of it is just a well crafted pop song. Yeah, well, it is. And, you know, he also wrote a song called, you know, since he was one of our writers, staff writers, he wrote a song called Mirror of Your Heart. Oh, yeah. When I, when I heard uh-huh. that, I just fell in love with it. And, I, of course, I, I titled one of my albums, Mirror of Your Heart. And David's singing all the backgrounds on my cut. 
you know, which is his song. And I added some things to the song. He didn't have it completely finished, but I added some things. But, you know, David started the song, and he was just great at hooks and great at writing and great at ideas. And he's just a great songwriter in general. And it turns out he was just a phenomenal singer, too. So, yeah. But I, he never, I don't think he ever hit the road and became, tried to become an art, you know, a, a mainstream artist, at least what I'm familiar with. But he sure made great music. Yeah, kind of, you know, there was this cool little Eagles meets Hall and Oates, especially with some of that soulful uh, harmonies. But one of the things that really stands out for me, and and I'll be honest, I wasn't familiar with him until I heard the, uh, the, the title track, was the sax player on that. Phil Nash got Sam Levine to play saxophone on it. And wow, that guy can play. Yeah, 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 he can. Yeah, well, he, he is amazing. The answer that you kind of answered is that I was having so much success with B.J. Thomas and girls and Amy Grant and Steve Archer and Whiteheart. Whiteheart sold three or four hundred thousand and B.J. was gold and platinum and Amy was Amy. And, you know, everything was selling so much. Like when I heard that, uh, I know we're not talking about Mark Hurd, but this kind of answers the way I thought in those days. Uh, I heard Larry Norman had dropped him, you know, and I said, man, uh, I looked up his sales, and his sales were dismal. They're like two or three thousand record. That I means nothing, you know. And I said, and I called him over, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm, I've had a lot of success, you know, and other things, and, and it's all been very pop driven and sales oriented and commercial oriented. And I'd love to do five albums on you, and just let you do whatever you want to do. I mean." And, and Mark was that way. He didn't want anybody to tell him what to do. He wanted to pick the songs. He wanted to write the songs. He wanted to do the whole the cover himself. He just he wanted that was the way he was. Yeah. In and, fact, uh, in fact, so you'll know that Mark Hurd um, ends up as I go through these one thousand and one albums. He actually is the number two artist in terms of total number of albums behind. Um, Terry Taylor, which is a little unfair because Terry Taylor has Daniel Amos, Swirling Eddie, Solo Projects, Lost Dogs, so he ends up on a whole lot of albums. Uh, but Mark Hurd, as a solo artist, I, I'm looking at the list right now, and I think that there's 10 or possibly 12, and I'm not going to give too much away, but let me say that one of the Home Sweet Home albums, <clears throat> something about getting in a taxi cab and driving around the city, is um we won't let's put it this way we won't get to that album for at least three or four years it's probably going to be it will be on the last two or three episodes of this podcast um i think victims of the age is if not the greatest album in the history of christian music is in the top five and we will get to that eventually but um i've always appreciated the fact that you made an album with mark hurd that is one of the greatest albums of all time well i appreciate that but you know i really did it uh i'm not sure it was as a ministry but i felt like you know you were the bob dylan of christian music and it's a shame that that you don't have a record deal and i just want to fund your records and i want to put them out and let's see if anybody cares you know yeah, because this is nobody. And again, I, we're getting a little off the topic just because, and I'll be honest with you, you say Mark Hurd and I can go for the next two and a half hours talking about Mark Hurd because I think that he and Terry Taylor and Larry Norman are probably three of the finest songwriters um, in, the history, uh, in the history of Christian music. But looking at it from this perspective, David Martin kind of falls into not necessarily the same category, 
but he wasn't an artist that was out there like Steve Archer hitting the road doing 200, 250 dates a year. He wasn't playing in churches, but he was creating great songs. And I did notice that he does do his own version of Let the Wind Blow. And one of the things I like about his version is that it doesn't sound, even though it's the same song, it doesn't have the same sort of arrangement. His is a little darker. It's a little um, more laid back. It it, it would be impossible and and utterly foolish to try and compete with what the Imperials did with Let the Wind Blow because it probably ranks in the top 10 of Imperial songs. But what he did with it, actually, I found to be pretty impressive. Well, uh, his version, you know, I let uh, Phil, well, I'm not sure I'll let. I think I signed David, and then I went to L.A. to to try to have a pop record deal. And so I was not around, and I was focused on my pop record uh, pursuit. And so Phil Nash was the keyboard player, and and he knew David, so I asked Phil to produce it. So Phil, David's version is a combination of Phil and David's way of uh, seeing that song then when I did the Imperials the Imperials version is my way of seeing that song and it's not that one's better or worse but they're just different yeah because one is significantly a stronger pop radio is and, and listening again today before I had a chance to talk to you I wanted to go back and listen to the album again and and David's is a little um, darker and it has kind of this breezy sort of feel to it and it's a little bit of a different key and I think that's smart from a songwriter's perspective. You know, you have a song that at that point that David's album came out, Let the Wind Blow from the Imperials was about six months beforehand. It was still one of the biggest albums, if not the biggest album in Christian music at that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, really, the answer with Glenn Allen Green and David Martin and Mark Her answer, you know, because... I just I found great songwriters that I thought were great that their their lyrics and music needed to be heard and whether it was successful financially or not was not really the point because I had plenty of records that allowed me that were making were successful commercially and that allowed me to not even take chances I didn't see him as Mark Curtis a chance I just said this needs to be out there and I want to be I want to help him get his music out. Yeah, same and, way with David Martin and Glenn, Glenn Allen Green. Yeah, and I look forward to. In fact, it'll probably be a little while. Uh, we'll bring you back, and we'll uh, we'll actually talk about one of of Mark's albums that I don't want to get off on a tangent now. And talk about, but um, Eye of the Storm continues to be one of my all time favorite albums from Mark as as well. So, but again, we're, we've been test- uh, talking about David Martin. If you do not own David Martin's album, find a way to track it down. I have seen it available in digital through Amazon and things like that. So. It is worth uh, tracking um, that great project down. If if I, I think in the review I made the note that there are sometimes there's an album that you know what one song is worth getting the entire album for and stronger than the weight I think is one of those songs. But what you'll find when you buy that album or get that album that the rest of the album is equal to it and is, and is worth it. And and Chris, thank you so much for talking about. Um, uh, this great album and we will be uh, coming back soon and talking about another great album from Home Sweet Home called The Living Fire by Glenn Allen Green uh, so again thank you Chris and uh, we will be right back
Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash legacy ccm's greatest albums at instagram at legacy ccm's greatest albums and finally on twitter at legacy ccm's best We're introducing a new feature here to the podcast, and it will be a podcast-only feature. It's not something that'll end up on the blog, so to actually find out what albums are going to be included and what's being called On The Bubble, you have to listen to the podcast. On The Bubble are those albums and artists that were uh, one time included on the countdown, but for some reason kind of fell off. In fact, many of them fell off, went back on, fell off, went back on. And then finally, when the thing was finished, um, they just were on the bubble. These are also a great way for us to kind of um, make these albums known to a lot of people. Some of them are albums that were kind of missed. Some of them may be ones that were a bit forgotten about. But On The Bubble are albums that probably ultimately deserve to be a part of the countdown, but simply just ended up on the bubble. The first of those artists is a group by the name of Ten Shekel Shirt. And the album we're going to talk about is Much. As the millennium was turning, there was this uh, shift in CCM. Rock, grunge, alternative bands, um, though remaining super popular, kind of gave way to acoustic-driven bands, kind of like Cademan's Call. So, so as a result, the style of music integrated into the church and modern worship music kind of merged with those artists. So in an industry that had bands like Sonic Flood, Big Daddy Weave, Delirious, David Crowder, Starfield, Leland, Mercy Me, By the Tree, all of these bands kind of had this acoustic rock with a worship-leaning sort of sound. And one of those artists was Ten Shekel Shirt, and they're a debut album, much. The band actually ended up doing about three albums on about three different labels, but the first album really stuck. They were kind of a short-lived band. Um, They were uh, influenced primarily by Lamont Hebert, who is the leader of the group, Um, and he has a real ministry focus to his life in general. He actually has a ministry now called Love 146 that works uh, to, uh, to help stop child slavery and sex slaves and exploitation. Um, so, so as a result, a lot of that stuff kind of weaved its way into both the ministry, the music, but also just into the life uh, of, of Lamont and, and kept the album or kept the band from continuing on. The album actually kicks off with this great Cademan's Call type riff in the song Meet Me Here. Immediately likable, should have been an easy number one single. If you were familiar with the uh, City on a Hill projects, this thing would have fit right in. I'm here to meet with you Come and meet with me I'm here to find you Reveal yourself to me As I wait, you make me strong as I long 
Ultimately, though, it was the second cut on the album that brought the band the mass amount of appeal that they did get. It was the song Ocean. It became a huge, huge hit on Christian radio, and it would give the band both a number one hit, and it also helped them garner a Dove Award nomination for Album of the Year. One last song I'd really like to highlight on is the title track, Much. Though it ranks as probably the most worship-oriented album uh, song on the album, it's such a beautiful song and conveys such an equally beautiful message. Um, there's these great strings that accompany this wonderful uh, harmony, and it sets this song apart from most of its contemporaries. It's a song of humility. So as a result, the song stands out against an industry filled with uh, kind of like self-glorifying worship melodies, the God, aren't you lucky we're here to worship you? This song is kind of just the opposite, and it actually recognizes our natural response to the one who forgave us. Number 987. This is the very first of several Michael Knott projects that will find its way onto the list suffers from what I call EP bias. In other words, there is a bias when I made the list that EPs are not rated as high simply because they do not contain as many songs. It's difficult to compare an artist who puts out four or six songs on a project versus a project that has 10, 12, or more songs on it. If this was a full-length release and the songs were uh, equal in quality, this album would have been ranked much, much, much higher the album is called Serg et Illuminaire, which I will only say once because I probably said it wrong and won't be able to pronounce it again the same way, from Michael's band, Idol Lavelle. It was a very short-lived band. They only put out one project, and it ended up being the very first project that was put out on the Blonde Vinyl label. And the great irony, it's also the only album that was put out on vinyl at the time. 
But Ida Lavelle is kind of a segue between different incarnations of Lifesavers and LSU. Um, the band went through several incarnations, had a couple key members that stayed pretty much the same. People went in and out, uh, but it was still pretty much a Michael Knott project. He was responsible for most of the writing um, and, of course, being the lead singer, guitarist, and, and uh, being the main performer, it is simply listed as kind of another one of Michael Knott's projects. Um, I, I had a feeling that kind of like Aunt Betty's, this was really a hope for something that was have much more of a mainstream appeal. The songs, uh, one of them uh, would end up on a uh, follow-up album by the Lifesavers. It would end up on the Kiss of Lies album. And um, the style was a little bit darker. Um, it had more kind of like a dance goth sort of feel. Uh, it was right in tune with what was happening musically at the time. Uh, bands like The Cure, The Church, Echo and the Bunnymen, Psychedelic Furs, all of those kind of bands with kind of a dark, cool, but still danceable sort of edge. Uh, album starts off with a great track called Touch Me in the Wind. Of course, that song would have been incredibly current for the time, especially for uh, people living in Southern California in the L.A. scene with radio stations like KROQ. Uh, now, the, the, the other song that I really kind of wanted to point out is the song I Can't Wait, which actually appears on the Lifesavers Kiss of Life album, as I mentioned previously. But the interesting thing is, despite the fact that Ida Lavelle uh, was a much more darker sounding album and the darker kind of feel to the band, the version is actually much more pop and upbeat than what appears on the Kiss of Life album. So it's kind of like a juxtaposed against each other in that they kind of would have fit almost better musically on each other's project.
Idol Lavelle kind of serves as kind of a record keeper for the times, and it was a progression of Mike Knott as a singer, a songwriter, and a performer. He was always ahead of the, of the times, he was always on the edge, and he was consistently making memorable music. But I kind of want to point out that his music was much more palatable and even commercially accessible than a lot of the other artists that he is compared to and knew how to, uh, how to write a great pop tune. That is Idol Lavelle at number 987. That is all the time we have for this week. Thank you for joining me, and we will be back with a continuing countdown. We will be talking about a groundbreaking album for one of the biggest artists in the history of Christian music. We'll also be traveling to Narnia. We'll be going back to the 60s. We'll be once again talking to our friend Chris Christian, and we'll even be talking to a metal band from the 90s called New Jerusalem. That and a whole lot more, and quite possibly a very special surprise guest That'll be next time right here on Legacy.